Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, the psalm will be in this morning as we continue to make our way through the first book of Psalms. Of course, the whole book is divided into to five separate books, and we're looking at and working through book one of the Psalms. And now we come to Psalm 8, so psalm that many people are very familiar with. Probably many have memorized it. It's a psalm that has many connections to Psalm 2, many connections to Psalm 110, the exaltation of Christ. And of course, it comes on the heels of these other psalms that we've been working through where David has basically been on the run. He is a persecuted Messiah, a persecuted lowercase Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. And you wonder, as all of this is happening, you wonder if David would lose resolve, if he would despair. And, and then you come to Psalm 8. And you're reminded where David's heart and his mind was fixed on the majesty and the glory of God and fixed on the promises that he had made that will affect all of man. That the dominion that was corrupted and in many ways lost in Genesis 1 will be restored. And it will be restored for all mankind through the one man, ultimately, Christ Jesus. So Psalm 8, our text, begins with a heading to the choir master according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. And we begin reading in verse 1, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, you are indeed a majestic and great and glorious God. God whose wisdom is far beyond our comprehension. 
God whose ways are far higher than ours. You are a God who upholds the very universe. Heaven is your throne, the earth is your footstool, and yet with all of your power, all of your glory, all of your strength and might, you are a God who takes pleasure and delight in the lowly things. You are a God who delights to exalt that which is weak and to shame the wise with the things that are foolish. Father, I pray that as we are people who seek to walk in accordance with Your ways, the people who, because of the foolish things You have done in exalting a cross and a crucified Messiah, because You have turned the wisdom of the world into foolishness by exalting Your foolishness and proving it to be wise. Because we have been beneficiaries of this great work and now have been called to orient the entirety of our lives around it, I pray, Lord, that we would also be a people who are marked not by boasting in our own strength, not by pursuing power, but by humbling ourselves and being weak so that You may exalt us. I pray, Father, that as we hear and heed the words of this psalm, that You would shape us in conformity with the image of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think it's a profound or a unique point to make to say that many Christians, particularly in the West, are finding themselves in new and uncharted territory. We are living in what Carl Truman describes in his book, a strange new world. Things have changed. Things have shifted. Culture is rapidly changing because of the ideas that were sown hundreds of years ago and which are now giving birth. It is descending into moral and spiritual chaos. It is descending into political and societal suicide. And because of this, Many Christians are experiencing something that they've never known before. They are outcasts. They are strangers, foreigners, exiles. And not just conceptually or theologically, but truly. They are having to navigate moral issues in their place of work. And in their homes, and in their schools, in their recreation, and in the marketplace that they've never had to navigate before. Perhaps as we even think about these things, it may be the case that you feel this way. That, that, that you've experienced this. 
You're living in this strange new world and it seems as if all the walls are crumbling down around you and you wonder, what am I to do? What's the Christian to do? And when this happens, when Christians find themselves as outcasts, it can be very easy for some sense of panic or anxiety to set in. There's a sudden realization that the world that I'm living in is not what I thought it was. The foundations that I thought were strong were not strong at all. The institutions that I trusted in are proving to be untrustworthy. And for many people, even the theology and beliefs that they held to are now seeming to be totally insufficient. If I might put it this way, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it's as if many people are looking around now. Many Christians are looking around and suddenly realizing, wow, the world is sinful. And very much so. And for many, when this theological and we might say worldview anxiety sets in, they look for solutions that sound powerful and strong. We want to talk about winning, not losing. We want to talk about victory, not submission. We want conquest. We don't want retreat. And of course, all of this is fine and good. All of this language of conquering and conquest and winning is totally appropriate insofar as we define our terms properly and biblically. There is a major, major difference between the winning and the victory and the conquest that the Jews in the first century living under Roman power and oppression wanted and the winning and victory and conquest that Christ brought. Major difference. The first centered around victory through strength. The latter around victory through weakness. The first involved a Messiah who would kill the Romans, who would be bloody, who would wipe them all off the face of the earth. The latter involved a crucified Messiah who was killed by the Romans. The first impulse is what characterized the zealots. And the latter impulse is what characterized the Christians. What we find in the pages of Scripture is that Christ is indeed a victorious King. He is a conquering King. He destroys the works of the devil. He defeats the grave itself. But all of these victories come through humiliation. 
They come through weakness. They come through suffering. He leaves the glory of the bosom of His Father to become a man. To become a servant in the Incarnation. He endures the suffering of the cross, despising the shame, and was then exalted at the right hand of the Majesty on high. But His exaltation does not come apart from humiliation and weakness and lowliness. And Christ teaches His disciples to live and to endure and to conquer in the very same way. In Romans 8, when the Apostle Paul is speaking of the tribulations and the persecutions, indeed the slaughtering of the very sheep of the living God, he does not respond to that by saying, Oh Lord, we're losing! We're being slaughtered every day and there's no victory. No, that's not what he says. He says, no, in all these things. In what? In the persecution. In the tribulation. In the slaughtering. In our being killed all day long. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are winning. Through death. Through suffering. Because of Christ. And John, in his vision of Satan's defeat in Revelation 12, speaks likewise of the brothers, of the, the Christians who also conquer Him conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Why? For they love not their lives even unto death. They died. And they won. They defeated Satan through death in the same way that Christ defeats the devil through suffering and death. One of the things that I think has been exposed in the church over the last decade or so is that not many Christians have a robust enough theology of suffering and weakness. We have lived in prosperity. We have lived in relative comfort for so long that we now count it strange that the fiery trials have come. That's what's abnormal. We have lived so long without ever having to think through the reality of suffering and weakness that it's not there. But our God is a God who is pleased to work through and to accomplish His will through the weak and the lowly. He reveals His majesty through the base 
things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor, the lowly, those are the ones God delights to exalt. He delights to manifest his glory through that which is weak. And what we find in Psalm 8 is that this is exactly how God has always worked. He has baked this into creation itself. And the psalm reveals even more that this method, if you will, this baking into creation revealing His majesty through weakness, it's revealed even more in a post-fall world. It's there prior to the fall. It's there after the fall. And this psalm is about, of course, the majesty of the Lord. It begins and it ends with the very same praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. But sandwiched in between this praise of God is an explanation for why David believes the Lord is so praiseworthy. Why is He so majestic? And the primary theme and idea that runs throughout this psalm is that in the wisdom of God, He reveals His glory and majesty through weakness. Notice with me again in verses 1 and 2. We see this idea being expressed. Namely, that God's majesty is revealed chiefly through weak things of the world. David begins, of course, by praising the Lord and marveling at the fact that His glory reaches into the heights of heaven and even beyond. You have set your glory above the heavens, he says. God's majesty is not without, or is, it has no restraint to it. It has no limits to it. As the sovereign creator, he stands above not only the earth, but even the heavens. As he says in Isaiah, or through Isaiah, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. There is a vastness to it all, a seeming infinite depth of wonder that our minds can barely comprehend. Even if we were to think only of the earth, the bottom of the sea is something we can only imagine and the highest mountain is something most of us will never see. And yet, all of it, all of creation in heaven and on earth cannot contain the glory and majesty of the Lord. But for David, what is the wonder of wonders is how God reveals His strength and majesty and glory not only through the things that are most obviously majestic, but even through, if not 
chiefly through the weak things of the world. He says in verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still, to stop the enemy and the avenger. Now, verse 2 has some textual difficulties that can present some challenges in understanding the meaning. For example, the Septuagint, which was the Greek text used during the days of Jesus, says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have prepared praise. Whereas in Hebrew, it says you have established strength. It's worth stating, however, that sometimes, as even modern translations will do, the translators will translate a difficult phrase to make it more understandable to the target audience. And that appears to be what's going on here. What does it mean that out of the mouth of babies and infants, God establishes strength? Well, for one thing, it seems that the Septuagint translators are interpreting this whole line as a metaphor. And to make sense of the metaphor, they are interpreting the strength that is coming out of the mouth the mouth of babies as praise. God's strength is being established. It's being revealed and confirmed and made known through the praise of infants and small children. The basic idea of the metaphor then is that God is going to stop His enemies He's going to defeat his foes and expose their folly in ways that make no sense. His saving power over his enemies is seen chiefly in weak things. And this is consistent with the way that Jesus uses this very same text in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus enters into the temple in Matthew 21 in His triumphal entry, He was healing the lame and healing the blind, the, the weak things of the world. And they were praising Him for it. And there were also children who were crying out to Him, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this made the chief priests and scribes furious. Jesus' enemies were angry that He was being praised as the Son of David, as the Messiah, as the Savior of Israel, and that this praise was coming from the mouth of foolish children. What do they know? They're not scribes. They haven't been trained in the traditions of the Pharisees. What do they know? We've already rejected you as the son of David. Now you're allowing these foolish children to affirm you as the Messiah? They're furious. Especially that these 
children are praising him. And Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Since the very beginning, both prior to the fall, as we'll see in a moment, and even after the fall, God has determined to exercise His sovereign rule in and through weakness. When man fell into sin, God determined to get victory over the enemy. Victory over the serpent through the woman's offspring. Through a baby. Her offspring and your offspring will be at enmity with one another and He will crush your head. When He determined to bless the nations through this offspring and by a covenant, a covenant that He made with Abraham, He did this by raising up an offspring from a woman's barren womb. She's weak. She can't have children. She's grieved at this. And God raises up an offspring through that weakness. When He determined to magnify His power over Pharaoh, He did so through saving a nation of slaves. He took a people who had no power, who were few, who were enslaved, and He demonstrated His glory over Pharaoh by redeeming them from His hand. And when He determined to anoint a king for Himself to replace the wicked Saul, He chose a little shepherd boy that no one was looking for. Even his own father Jesse was shocked that David could be the anointed king. And of course, when he determined to conquer sin and death and save sinners, how did he do it? He did it through a cross. He took the most shameful thing on earth. The public shame of death and a Roman cross And he took that and he says, this is how sin and death will be defeated through this weakness. God is not a locker room gym bro who's trying to demonstrate to everyone how much he can bench press. He takes pleasure in weakness. He delights in exalting the lowly over what is high and strong in the world. As Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, he says there, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You go after the strong things. You go after all of the things that look powerful and you'll have reason to boast in God. 
or to boast before Him in His presence. What does Paul say? The way that God has ordered creation, the way that He has ordered His redemptive plans is to exalt what is lowly and weak so that no one will be able to boast in His presence. He and He alone will receive the glory. It is out of the mouth of babes and infants that He stills the enemy and the avenger and He reveals His power and glory through weakness. But second, we also find David here meditating on God's exalting of weak things as he contemplates the creation of man. In verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So he's, he's observing creation. He's looking at its order and its manifest power. He's doing what probably many of you have done before when you're just out in nature and you're seeing the the majesty of God in the things that are powerful in the world. God has fixed this massive moon in the sky and it reflects the light of the sun at night and it gives us a little bit of light. But but of course, what is the moon? It's like a whole other planet. And He just... Put it there. What do you think about the sun? I mean, it's so powerful. You can't even look at it for an extended period of time lest you go blind. Lest your eyes begin to be in pain. It is this giant ball of fire that's giving us heat thousands of miles away and God just put it there. It's His power. It's His strength. These these very elements of creation have so much immensity, so much strength to them that they're intimidating to us in many ways. David is observing. He's meditating on the obvious power that is seen in creation. And then he thinks of man. Looking out. Seeing power. And then he comes to man. Verse 4. What is man? What is man? That you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. Now as we'll see in a moment, man is created as a kind of apex of creation. As the crown of creation. He is the image of God. There is profound dignity that has been given to man by virtue of his being created in God's image. But at this point in the psalm, in the face of the sheer power seen in the created order, David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? It is truly the case that man in the world is a weak thing. We often don't think of ourselves that way. We think about all of the things that we can do. 
We view ourselves as strong and power. We, we make things. We build things. We invent new technologies. We create beautiful pieces of art. We construct skyscrapers that reach into the sky. We travail mountains. We harness the wind to be able to fly. It is truly the case that man can do many great things and there is great power that he exercises. But the comparison that is being made is between the might of the heavens and the might of man. And when you put those two things together, man is weak. Ever so often we are reminded that despite our dignity, despite the unique and powerful capabilities we have by virtue of being made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, we are weak. We build an entire city. And then in a matter of just an hour, a hurricane comes through, flattens it to the ground. It's no more. A tornado, as we had here, comes and just destroys everything in its path. We perform medical wonders, and then the tiniest of bacteria, things that we can't even see, some microscopic organism makes us fall ill and we die. It's often that nature humbles us. God uses nature to humble us. It reminds us of our helplessness and weakness. It reminds us that our relationship to the ground is presently cursed. And we are at the mercy of things that are far more powerful than we. This is the comparison that David is contemplating. Compared to the great powers of the cosmos. What is man? There is a weakness to us, and one of our great sins is forgetting that. Is believing that we are like, or we can become like God and exercise an independent sovereignty over creation. When we can't. It's pride. It's what we wanted in the beginning, to be like God. God often has to humble us and remind us who we are in the order of the power of nature. But our weakness, friends, our weakness is not a cause for shame. This is not something where we have some self-loathing because of our weakness, because in God's wisdom, He has determined to rule and manifest His majesty through this very same weakness. Which leads us third to this last idea that we find in the psalm, which has to do with the dominion of man coming through His humiliation, coming through His lowliness. So man, in the order of nature, is among the smallest and the weakest of God's created works. And yet, the psalm says, you have made him. That is, man. You've made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings. The 
Septuagint translates this line here, the Hebrew line, rightly in a temporal sense. It says there, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, this is clearly a reflection on the creation account. The very same terms are being used here that you find in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verse 26, for example, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is how man was made. He is the lone creature that is made in the image of God. He is the only one of whom it is said that He will have dominion over all the earth. All of creation was subjected under His feet. And of course, this dominion and and subjection was not to be in any way some sort of combative rule. He was not to exercise his rule in some abusive, tyrannical way. He is made in the image of God to reflect the very character of God as the rule of God extends throughout the earth. God was king and man was to be his vicegerent or his co-ruler exercising a rule that would be marked by peace, that would be marked by tenderness, care, and prosperity. Flourishing over all the earth. That was God's created order and His creative purposes for man. And when He finished His works of making man and woman to rule over the earth, He then said, it is very good. So, We have here in this psalm a very obvious allusion to and a reflection on the created order and the dominion given to man over it. But this psalm is not just looking backwards. The focus is not just a meditation on Genesis 1. Nor is it speaking about how things are now. It is a prophetic psalm looking forward to the things to come through the lens of what has come before. It is, to use one of my favorite words, typological. It is prophetically pointing forward to things to come in the future that will be like and patterned after things that have come before. We already know from from the psalm that Genesis 1 is not 
the only thing that is in view because, of course, the psalm speaks also of the presence of enemies. The psalmist, as well as we, are living in a post-fall world. We are living in the world of Genesis 3 and beyond. And because of this, A simple observation informs us that that original dominion that was given to man in Genesis, which the psalm alludes is not a dominion that is being carried out now. The psalm says that all things are under the feet of man. And yet, just look around. Does it seem like that's the case? I don't think that you would want to go out in the middle of the ocean and swim with sharks right now. Nor do I think that you have any intentions of snuggling with a lion on your couch in the near future. All things at present are not under subjection. And even the animals that we do tame, and the livestock, and the sheep, and the oxen, etc. It is not as if we're fulfilling that original creation mandate. Why? Because we eat them. That's not what Genesis 1 was about. Our relationship to them is not characterized by Genesis 1 But Genesis 9, in the post-fall world where the fear and dread of us is upon every beast, there is a combative relationship that is part of the created fallen order that we now live in. Moreover, The psalm speaks of man being made lower than the angels for a little while. Implying that there is a time to come when we shall be higher than the angels and over them. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3, a time when we will judge angels. We stand over them. We will rule over them. Presently, the angels exercise an administrative rule over man. This is seen in texts like Daniel 10, where the angel Michael is defending the people of God from the prince of Persia, which is also a heavenly figure. Or it may be seen in the fact that the devil himself is called the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's ruling over them. There is an order of rule that exists where man is presently lower than the angels. But the psalm says... This will only be for a little while. A little while. Anticipating a new day and a new order to come. And it's these kinds of subtle little textual 
indicators, I would argue, that leads the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 to quote this very psalm as a prophetic psalm that speaks of things to come. Throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Hebrews, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, the author argues the case for the superiority of Jesus, the Son of God, and the Son of Man over angels. And after a brief warning that he gives in verses 1-4 to of Hebrews 2, not to neglect the great salvation that has come in and through the new covenant, the author returns to his previous argument. And he says beginning in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected, notice, the world to come. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And he goes on to quote Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then notice the explanation he gives of the text. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Nothing is accepted in man's dominion. There is not a square inch, not a single creature that the psalm is leaving outside of the dominion of man. But then notice, at present, right now, as you look around, as you observe creation, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. To who? To man. Verse 9, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. The author is making a profound, highly exegetical, eschatological argument based on Psalm 8 and the death and resurrection and exaltation of Christ. And I want to just break it down for you real quick in, in three parts. Number one, he quotes the psalm with reference to the world to come. This psalm is about the world to come. It's not about the present. It's not describing the present order of things. It's about the world to come. The world where man, and not just one man, but all men, is even over the angels. 
Unless we be confused as to what he means by the world to come, he speaks of this very same idea in temporal terms in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5, when he speaks there of the age to come, and he speaks of it in spatial terms in Hebrews 13, verse 14, when he speaks of the city to come, which is identified in chapter 12, verse 22, as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what he's identifying the world to come with, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Psalm 8 and this all-encompassing dominion of man is realized not in the present, but in the new world that is no longer marked by sin and death. Take a breather. That's number one. Number two, as evidence of the certainty of man's dominion, mankind's dominion over all things, including the angels, he points to the present exaltation of Christ, who is the representative man, who is the last Adam, the new Adam, and the one who is now what we will be then. He has been crowned with glory and honor And the point is that because He has been crowned, so shall we be. Because this exaltation has occurred with Christ, what has happened with Christ is also what will happen with us. For He goes on in verse 10 of chapter 2 to speak of the fact that the whole point of Jesus' work was to bring many sons to glory so that he is not the only man crowned with glory and honor but he is the first fruits of what is to come and then three the last important observation to make is that this exaltation and this glory and honor came through humiliation. It came through humbling. It was the path of suffering and death. It was the path of obedience unto death. It was the path of becoming for a little while lower than the angels in His incarnation that led to His being crowned with glory and honor. And the point that the author of Hebrews makes all throughout his sermon is that this path of humiliation or humbling, this path of suffering and death is not a path that was unique to Jesus alone, but is the path that He walks before us showing us the way to glory. Showing us the road that we must travel. 
The recipients of this sermon, you know, are presently suffering. They're having their property plundered. They're not just strangers and exiles and outcasts. They're being beaten. And the author of Hebrews is telling them, this shouldn't be surprising. You must endure. Why? Because this is what you've been called to. Consider him who endured from sinners hostility against himself, he says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You endure. You will suffer. And you do it to the glory of God because one has gone before you showing you how you suffer to the glory of God so that at His time you may be exalted. The same way that Jesus' path to glory came through humiliation and death, so also must the Christian follow Him in that same way. We must become low. We must become weak. We must humble ourselves because God has chosen to shame the wise by the weak things of the world. We learn to obey God. We learn how to obey God and to remain faithful to Him even through suffering now while we trust in the promises that He is preparing for us a world to come in which we will be exalted even over the angels and over all the earth. Whatever views we have of the world, whatever views we have of the advancement of the Gospel, we cannot ever leave beside, leave by the wayside, this real idea baked into creation prior to the fall and after that God exalts the weak things of the world. We want to conquer. We want to be victorious. And indeed, the promise of the Gospel is that we will be insofar as we suffer with Him. And we look to Christ as our example par excellence. The one who shows us the way of suffering unto glory. We look to Him now as the one who has gone before and who has been exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we look to Him as a foretaste of what is to come. Our hope, friends, is not ultimately that we may have a life where there's no suffering. Our hope is ultimately rooted in the fact that though we suffer now, God, through that suffering, is molding us into the image of His Son. And at His proper time, He will exalt us and place us over all creation 
even over the angels themselves. So we embrace it. We embrace the call to weakness. And we embrace it knowing that God receives glory and exalts His majesty through it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need to be humbled. As your word teaches us, we are to humble ourselves so that you may exalt us. We must embrace weakness, for in embracing weakness, the strength of God is manifest. But we must become fools for Christ. For in becoming fools, you have determined to shame the wise. So, Father, I pray for all of us that we ultimately would be marked by this humility. That we would entrust ourselves into your sovereign hand. That we would not lose hope. That we would not despair if there are tribulations, persecutions, slaughterings, but that in and through all of these things, we would be more than conquerors through you who have loved us. And I pray that as each day goes by, whatever trials may come, that we would look to that glorious promise of an inheritance to come. The inheritance that, as Peter says, is being kept in heaven for us, that that would be our great prize to be crowned with glory and honor and to be in the presence of Christ himself seeing him face to face and ruling as co-rulers with him so father grant us endurance and grant us humility i pray in jesus name